Take a moment and think in your life about the very best sandwich you have ever had. I hope it's not Subway. Hope it's none of those fast food places. The sandwich that came to mind as I was thinking about it, there's a sandwich called the curmudgeon at Founders in Grand Rapids. It's like a Reuben, but better. I don't know how. I don't even know what's in it. don't even know what's on it, but it's amazing. Now, here's the thing. Most sandwiches are just like, eh, it's a sandwich, right? You like eat it to survive, and that's about it. But then you get that one sandwich that just sticks with you. There's just something extra special about it. You know what I'm talking about. It's like overflowing with goodness. And then, you know, it might have like a little like spicy mustard in it, which adds a little bit of drama, right? You know what I'm talking about? Some cheese in there and the meat and all this stuff. Well, today, believe it or not, is about a sandwich that has plenty of drama and is absolutely overflowing with goodness. Week five of our series, Follow Me, where we are going through learning how to follow Jesus by looking at one chapter of Mark each week. And today, we're talking about a sandwich. It's called a Markin sandwich. Have you heard this term before? A Markin sandwich. It's not a Cuban sandwich. It's not a Reuben sandwich. It is a Markin sandwich. Okay? I'm not telling you what that means yet. So you're going to have to be held in suspense for a little while longer. But we will get there. Promise. So to catch us up on where we are in the book of Mark, uh, we're in Mark 5 today. And last week, we just spent time with with Jesus and his disciples in the boat as they crossed the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus displayed his power and authority over all things as he calmed the wind and the waves, and the disciples were amazed and filled with fear over what God, Jesus, can do. And now he lands on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. The very first part of Mark 5 It's perhaps one of my most favorite accounts in all of Scripture. It's when Jesus casts out a legion of demons from a man who was living in the tombs, sends the demons into the the huge group of pigs that then goes off into the sea. We're not talking about that today. Uh, We did a pretty deep dive on it back in October during our Supernatural series. So if you missed that, or you want to catch up on that again, or you just are intrigued by that, go back. You, you can look in our emails or on our bulletin how to listen to our past messages. It was October 30th of our Supernatural series when we talked about Satan's minions, demons. So if you want to hear about that account, go back to October 30. But today, we're picking up right after what happens there. So it's in Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 24 is where we're starting, and then we'll, we'll go a little bit further along the way. Hear now the word of the Lord. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him when he was by the lake. Then, One of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, 
My little daughter is dying. Please come put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him and a large crowd followed and pressed around him. Okay. So if you remember, Jesus was on one side of the Sea of Galilee. He was teaching in parables. He goes across the sea, the whole encounter at night with the, with the storm, and then he lands on the other side. He casts out this man, these demons and this man, and then they get back in the boat, apparently, to come back to the other side. And if you're the disciples, aren't you wondering, like, Jesus, what are we doing? Just back and forth and back and forth. Or, or, you just want us to work out a little bit more, to get stronger in the boats? What, what is this? But here's the thing. Why does Jesus do this? Well, Jesus is led by the Spirit. You remember way back, right after his baptism, he was led into the desert. That doesn't humanly make any sense, but we know the Spirit led him there. We also know Jesus would get up super early in the morning. To all of us, we're like, why in the world would you ever do that? But Jesus is saying, I need to start my day in significant prayer with God. He was led by the Spirit. Here he goes across the sea and back. He's led by the Spirit. It doesn't always make sense in our own lives what the Spirit is trying to do. But as we can see in this little little journey to and from and back, is that both on the journey and at the destination, there was work for Jesus to be done. He had to calm that storm. He had to show the disciples something. He had to go over and free this man and, and show the people something. And he needed to come back because he had something else to do. And now Jesus is led again by the Spirit into the crowds. And he's in these crowds. And he's in these crowds, all these people swarming around him and fighting and rushing and working and probably pushing and shoving and elbowing his way to Jesus is this man named Jairus. Jairus was a ruler of the synagogue. Rulers of the synagogue did not push their way through crowds, okay? They were an upright, law-abiding, pious type of individual. That would be Jairus. Now, we've dealt with some of these rulers already in the book of Mark. Most of the rulers of the synagogue would have been Pharisees. So it's a fair assumption that Jairus was likely a Pharisee or at least worked very closely with them. And if you remember, it's been at least five times now where the Pharisees have, have actively kind of gone against Jesus, have questioned Jesus, have had these encounters with Jesus. And we also know from way back, I think in, in, in Mark 3, if I'm not mistaken, that they are seeking a way to have Jesus killed. We don't know if Jairus is part of that plotting. We just know some of that group is actively plotting to kill Jesus. But here's Jairus, who has a daughter, 12-year-old daughter, and she's dying. This wasn't just a dying and might get better situation. This was, she was at the point of death, is what the text tells us. She's at the point of death. This is the moment of desperation. She is on her deathbed. And Jairus, who was at her side, as she lay on that deathbed, imagine he got up. And he left that place to seek Jesus. 
he had a deep desperation and urgency. And he believed, he believed, if only, if only I can get to Jesus, he can do this impossible thing. He, he knew sitting next to his daughter as she was helpless in the face of death, there's nothing I can do. There's nothing anyone can do. But, but Jesus is back on this side of the shore. If he comes, he can heal her. She will live. We know that because that are his, that's his very words he says to Jesus. His actions prove his sincerity. He comes to Jesus. He fights through the crowds, and then he lays down at Jesus' feet in the ultimate sign of humility. Again, something one of the rulers would not do. And he pleaded earnestly. Have you ever actually begged for anything in your life? Kids, we will often beg for like, you know, a treat or whatever. But as adults, have you ever actually begged and pleaded earnestly? Probably you have if you've had a moment when someone you love is close to death. Or you've had that diagnosis or that thing and and you, you know what it is to pour your entire being out. That's what Jairus did at the feet of Jesus. He had humility, deep sincerity, and deep need. In his desperation, he knew what he needed. And what he needed was Jesus Christ. To come to Jesus, he had to overcome his pride. He had to overcome prejudice from his fellow synagogue rulers, even shame and embarrassment to come to Jesus. See, they weren't supposed to be dealing with this man, Jesus. Jesus was causing all sorts of trouble. He was teaching, on, he was healing people on, on the Sabbath, and, and he, he, was, he, was, he was healing people, and, and he was going against them and questioning them and challenging them and preaching and teaching with such authority, and he had this huge following. They're not supposed to have anything to do with him. But he left the height of his privileged position to fall at the feet of Jesus because he was desperate. He was desperate. Desperation led him to Jesus. Desperation fueled by fear that his girl would die. Desperation, after all, for all of us, reveals what we need and what we lack. Reveals what we can do and absolutely what we cannot do. And in his desperation, he came to realize that Jesus was the answer. Have you ever felt that level of desperation where you're completely helpless and you knew there was nothing you or anybody you know that they could do anything. So you were desperate. What about that level of desperation for your absolute need of Jesus? It's so easy for us to almost fall asleep to the true desperate need we have every moment of every day of our lives for the Savior who sees us and created us and holds us? Do we have that absolute desperate, desperate, desperate need for Jesus? In our human world, in our own dealings with each other and whatnot, desperate, being desperate is usually viewed as a negative thing, right? Like, like, uh, for instance, if someone's like, like, 
pursuing that person they're interested in and they're calling and they're texting and they're sending letters and leaving very long voicemails and all this stuff. Someone might say to them, hey, you're kind of coming off a little desperate. It's not a positive thing. No one wants to hear that, right? And desperation often can turn obsessive, right? None of us want to be called desperate or obsessive. However, shouldn't we? Shouldn't we be utterly obsessed and desperate for Jesus? Would you agree with that? He gave us life. He brought us out of death. He gives us purpose. He heals. He saves. He forgives. We ought to be utterly and completely obsessed and desperate for our Savior. So are you desperate for Jesus? May all of us pray and repent and believe and embrace a desperation for the Savior of the world. Jairus, in his own desperation, sought and found Jesus. And Jesus agrees to come with him to help his daughter. But we find he is very quickly interrupted. And now, we at long last have our Markin sandwich. Okay, a Markin sandwich. It is when there are two stories that interact and weave together before both of them reach their natural conclusions. So right now, anyone reading this account of Jairus would say, this story is not yet over. Jesus is not yet done. It would be a major cliffhanger. That's all we got about Jairus. We return to it in a little bit. We got our first piece of sandwich, and now we're going to get a little something in between, and then we're going to have the finality, finale, whatever, with the final piece of bread. All right? And this is unlike a normal sandwich where I don't even really care about the bread. It's like the best baked bread you ever had with the best stuffing in the middle that you ever had and all that. That's our Markin sandwich. Because you start to see, wait, there's a, a little story within the story. So let us pick that up in verses 25 through 34. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered in a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all that she had. Yet, instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard, oh, when she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. And immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out of him and he turned around in the crowd and he asked, who touched my clothes? Who touched my clothes? He's, the disciples, God loves them. This is all of us. Uh, Jesus, you see the people crowding against you? And yet you asked, who touched me? <laughs> but Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Here's the thing Jesus knew. He was giving her an opportunity. And look at how she took this opportunity. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet. And trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. 
Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. It's like good stuff right there, isn't it? That woman, man, she has been through so much. So much. Twelve years of suffering. Twelve years of suffering. Twelve years, the same amount of time as that little girl lived. Twelve years she had suffered. On account of her condition, she was ceremonially unclean. You know what that means? One, she couldn't enter the temple. She could only enter the very outer areas. She couldn't go in any deeper. When she was out in public, she had to announce loudly and repeatedly, unclean, unclean, I am unclean. Because she couldn't be near or couldn't touch someone else left to make them also ceremonially unclean. Can you imagine the shame of that? It is almost like walking around with one of those sandwich boards of whatever shameful thing you have to deal with. And by the way, this is not anything of her doing. It's a simple medical condition that had made her suffer for year after year after year. And yet she had to go through the streets unclean. Twelve years of isolation, of trying to deal with this. Twelve years of desperately seeking a solution to this. And each time getting her hopes up, and boom, no. The doctors don't make it better. After all this time, it just has gotten worse. goes through the crowd. She goes through the crowd. She saw Jesus. So she goes through the crowd. Twelve years conditioned to avoid crowds and not touch anyone, and now she sees Jesus, and she goes into that crowd. She's not saying unclean. She's saying, he can do it. He can heal me. I know he can heal me. He is the answer. She doesn't announce her uncleanliness. She goes. She goes. She goes to Jesus. She must have been so afraid at first, walking up to Jesus through that crowd. People would have known her, and they're like, what's she doing? She's going anyway. She goes, and she goes, and she goes, because her faith was greater than her fear. We know this. We've seen this all throughout the Gospels, that fear wants to stop us, but faith will always fuel us toward Jesus. And she, like Jairus, believed that if only she could get to Jesus, she would be healed. Talk about being desperate. And this wasn't a deathbed type of desperate. This was a 12-year fully encapsulating all of life-consuming desperation. And she had suffered, and she had suffered in every way. She was at the very end of her rope, hanging on by a thread. She had absolutely no right to believe that she would ever get better except, oh, there is Jesus. There is Jesus. So she goes. She goes. She goes to Jesus. She touches his garment, touches his clothes. Twelve years been conditioned never to touch anyone else. It would have made Jesus ceremonially unclean. But what does it do instead? No, it doesn't make him unclean. It makes her clean. Her 12 years of suffering came to a skidding halt. And with fear, with trembling, with awe and reverence at the powerful presence of God who has healed her, she falls down before Jesus 
who is the answer to her desperation. Jesus asks, who touched me? She answers. She was not afraid of any earthly repercussions because the text tells us she told Jesus the whole truth. She held nothing back. I will tell it all. She had confidence in Jesus and sincere gratitude toward Jesus. I find it fascinating that throughout Scripture, we sometimes get individuals' names and sometimes we don't. We don't get her name, we get her condition. But what do we get? Something even better. For Jesus calls her daughter. 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 One who was an outcast is now welcomed into the family of God. Daughter. Your faith has made you well. Faith has made you well. We've heard that a few times throughout Mark. Remember the, the friends with the paralytic. Your faith has made you well. It's a fully encompassing made you well, both physical and spiritual. It is, I am Jesus Christ. I alone can forgive sins. I can alone make people fully well. You have been made well. Your faith has made you well. Perhaps, like this woman, you find yourself just at the end of your rope, and you feel like you are hanging on by a thread. We would never dare minimize your experience, just like we never dare minimize this woman's experience. Things come along and beat us down. The troubles of this world are real and significant, and we, like it or not, none of us ask for it, may find ourselves at the end of our rope, hanging on by a thread. When you are hanging on by a thread, make sure, make sure it's the hem of his garment. Hang on to Jesus in your pain, in your lack of answers, in your suffering, in your sorrow. Hang on to Jesus. I read an article this morning. <laughs> I don't know how I had time for that, but it was talking about the correlation between people giving in to despair through increased suicide rates, often at their own hand, or through excessive drinking. Significantly so in middle-aged men. And a lot of times people were thinking it was just all this other stuff going on, but they found a direct correlation with a decrease in church attendance and an increase of people giving in to despair. I'm here to tell you today that there is hope no matter what you are going through. And that hope has a name. That name is Jesus Christ. No matter what you're going through, no matter what you're experiencing, Jesus is there with you. And Jesus will heal you. He will be with you until the end. And even if we don't get the healing on this earth, when we do go to be with the Savior, all pain, all sorrow, all tears will be gone. There is hope in Jesus. There is hope in Jesus. If you are hanging on by a thread, you better make sure it's the hem of his garment and you hang on and Jesus is there and will meet you there. For in Jesus, we always have hope. There is hope in the name of Jesus. But our sandwich is not yet complete. 
For what about Jairus? What about that sweet 12-year-old girl? Well, while Jesus was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, the last thing any parent ever wants to hear, Jairus, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. Think about that for a second. At the moment of deepest sorrow for Jairus and the passing of his girl, Jesus says this, Don't fear, only believe. Except it's not a flippant thing. It's not. When Jesus says it, he actually means it. He actually, he actually means it. It's a rally cry to a faith that believes in the wonder-working power of our God. And so, Jesus allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. First little mention of kind of that inner closest three there. And so they come to the house of the ruler of the synagogue. And Jesus saw there was a commotion. There were people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child's not dead, but is sleeping. Jesus is not here um, um, glossing over emotions of individuals. Culturally at the time, there was this thing called uh, hired kind of professional mourners that would come and would publicly mourn. And this was, this was no small thing. This was a spectacle where they are screaming and wailing. They, there's accounts of them ripping out their hair at the sign of grief because of the reality of death. But Jesus shows up. There is no reason to mourn. There is no reason for this. Go home. Don't get your paycheck because you don't even need to be here right now. So he kicks them out. And they laugh at him because dead, dead is dead, right? But he put them all outside and, and he took the child's father and the mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately, The girl got up, and she began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and she's not going to stay down. She gets up. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And Jesus strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. This is Jesus. This is Jesus. He mends the broken. He heals the sick. He raises the dead to life. And he also cares about our daily needs as well because he commands him, get this girl a meal. Which we're about to celebrate together, a memorable meal of our own. Jairus and the woman Jesus calls daughter come in their own desperation and bows at the feet of Jesus. And with them they brought their fear, their sorrow, their pain, their shame, and their heartache. And as they encounter Jesus, like the girl, Jesus raises them up. What we gain from this Markin sandwich 
that having faith in Jesus is having a faith that defies defeat. That's why we can have hope. Because Jesus defies defeat. Jesus says, do not fear, only believe. For when we put our faith in him, we put our faith in the one who defies defeat. That's what we celebrate at this table today. That Jesus sees us in our own desperation, in our own heartache, in our own brokenness, in our own sorrow, in our deepest need. And he says to us, come, come, come. Feast at this table and remember, I have defied defeat. Isn't that what we remember? Isn't that what we remember by the elements present at this meal? Everything seemed against Jesus. He was having a meal with his disciples. He had warned them time and time again of a plot to destroy him. He had told them time and time again that it was all in the Father's plan. And yet they just, they just couldn't fathom it. They did not know. But he gathered at the table with these friends, these friends who were present at this account. Some time has gone by and many more miracles and more teaching and, and deepening understanding. And yet the desperation of those who follow him remained. And he sat around the, with them at the table. But this time was different. Because after giving thanks, he had taken the bread. And he broke it. And he gave it to them. And he said, take and eat. This is the body of Christ. As often as you eat of it, remember me. The bread which has been broken represents the body of Christ. Sometime later, after they had finished their meal and they continued to recline around the table, Jesus then had taken the cup, poured it out, and he said, this cup, the new covenant of my blood, often as you drink of it, remember me. This cup which we drink represents the blood of Christ that was poured out to the very last drop so that you might be filled up with what only he can give. This meal is a reminder of our brokenness and that Jesus willingly went to be broken so that we might be made whole. This meal is a reminder that we are completely helpless without him. And yet, as the one who gives his life, as the living water, he pours us, pours everything out to fill us up, reminding us again that our salvation is full and complete. It's not just in the future, it is right now. He has offered us a new life in the midst of our own desperation and need. And so we can come to this table with grateful and sincere hearts. We can come with an openness and a humility to say, thank you, Lord, for giving us what only you can give. We come to this table to be filled once more with the goodness of Jesus Christ and then be sent out to be his body in our midst. God is still doing what God does. 
And so this is a marker along the journey to remind us of his faithfulness from before, his faithfulness right now, and his enduring faithfulness forever. And we know it goes forever. For even right now in the heavens are those singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And we know the same God that way back in the garden clothed his children and gave a promise and a covenant that I will crush Satan's head is the same God who is here with us right now meeting us in our brokenness and is the same God who will come again to make all things right once and for all. And so we, as his beautiful, loved children, are invited by the Savior of the world to come, to come and feast at this table. Will you pray with me? Almighty God, we can't help but respond in gratitude, for there is no, there is no other posture when we consider who you are and all you've done. We thank you, Lord, for who you are. We thank you for what this meal reminds us of. God, meet us around this table. Commune with us, Lord. Fill us up again. And then send us out to be your hands and feet. We thank you, Lord, for who you are, what you're doing, and what you will do. In Jesus' name, amen.